Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, Offices from Hell. Sizzik, here with my colleagues. Bud Cadell. And Dr. Kim Perkins. Kim, that was a great evil laugh. Thank you. We practice this at Burning Man. Of course you do. <laughs> We're members of Novell, an organizational design firm that helps teams adopt new ways of working. Every month, we discuss what you can learn from fictional organizations in film and TV. But this month, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. In honor of Halloween, which is, of course, the best holiday, we are looking at portrayals of the workplace as literal hell in three works of fiction. Of course, when we we talk about our jobs being hell, we're using a metaphor. In our Office Space episode, Kim actually introduced this idea of the organization of metaphor And Kim, it's been a while, of course, since we talked about that, and our listeners may not have heard it. So could you give us a quick recap on what we mean by the organization as metaphor? Yeah. So the the idea is that people have different mental models of how organizations work. They may not be aware of them, but once we start talking about it, people tend to see, identify with one of several mental models that are out there. So the old one, of course, going back to Weber, is the uh, organization as machine. So there were all mechanical parts in a machine, like cogs, that are made to fit together and operate seamlessly. And as long as everybody is doing their job as a cog, then the machine should operate fine. So another metaphor, though. Hold on, that, I've got to call an Uber. <laughs> so then another metaphor that that is um, organizations as brains, so that it's networked, so that um, you go, you the information or moves from one node to another node, and that as long as uh, that's moving f- uh, correctly, then it's fine. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of organizational metaphors. There's like psychic prisons and cult, uh, organizations mm. as cultures, organizations as organisms. Yeah, as much as I would like for people to describe organizations as brains or even machines, usually when we go into an organization, we'll hear people say things like, oh, yeah, it's real Game of Thrones in here. Or it feels like the Hunger Games. Hunger Games. Right? We've heard multiple times. Yes. So it's it's like whatever dystopian uh, battle to the finish is in popular culture is usually the metaphor that we hear people using to describe their organizations. So I wanted to hear more about the, the different types of metaphors, which are maybe a little bit darker in keeping with today's theme. Yes. Well, to, what you, to your point, there's an organization as tournaments that has done a lot of has gotten a lot of interesting research in terms of that everything we're doing is dueling for uh, the next promotion. And so that reading it through that lens, but a larger way to think about that is the organizations as, uh, as political systems. And so in the, under that metaphor, people are having uh, conflicts of personal interest, which are then decided by who has the most power or who can gather the most power. And of course, there's many different types of power that one might gather and, and bring to it. I don't know. Cersei might say, "Power is power." <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think she would say that. 
What about this idea of psychic prisons? Psychic prisons is such an interesting one because it's the idea that we are locked into a certain way of viewing the world. Plato's cave, I think, is one of the examples here. Yeah, Plato's cave, where we're not observing the world directly, but we're only observing a, a, a flicker of the um, silhouettes on the wall that tell, tell us what this is. And so all organizations have cultures, to, uh, as you know, that we all, well, since that's something that we study, meaning that they have systems of creating meaning. And so organizations mm. as psychic prisons means that our way of creating meaning is keeping us from actually moving ahead, moving, adapting to the environment better. It's keeping us from moving on. Yeah. Another one that I really like, just because it sounds so cool, is instrument of domination. <laughs> well, instruments of domination is about the company as a whole or the or even the system of capitalism as a whole keeping it being mostly about keeping everybody in line and keeping people. Uh, so it's it's. There's some of the individual domination that might happen when we're thinking about bosses or people who have more power wanting to just throw their weight around and exert that power and preserve egos. But it's really more about the, 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 the system itself um, engineers the experiences that you're having, does not care about you, and wants to um, keep everybody performing in the same way for their own ends. So today we're going to be looking at Hell, as depicted in Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell, henceforth to be referred to as Pretty Face, the Bureau of Human Affairs, which is from The Good Place, and the law firm of Milton Chadwick Waters from The Devil's Advocate. So at this point, spoiler for the first two seasons of Good Place and Pretty Face, as well as Devil's Advocate. Let's take a look then at the different workplaces portrayed in these different works and sort of have a debate, right? Let's make an argument for what metaphors are represented in each of them. So first up, we have... Do we have a choice about that? We're just going to go... Do, we're going to do that, right? Yes, because okay. the culture here is... <laughs> An instrument domination. <laughs> yes. So wanted to talk about the good place. And again, not the good place, but rather the Bureau of Human Affairs. So we want to look at this from actually Michael's perspective of, of working and designing the good place that the humans actually experience. So what is it like? What does it feel like or look like to work at the Bureau of Human Affairs? If if we were putting out a want ad, right, we were trying to hire for this bureau, what would we describe the culture as? Well, it's hard to describe it in glowing terms because it is really a dystopic bureaucracy. I'm yeah. thinking about that uh, that scene in the accounting department with the endless cubicles and people, everybody's performance managed to death and everybody has very specific small jobs like dealing with the... Um, you know, new uses for vegetables and the dealing with the weird sex acts and figuring out how many of these points these give or take. It's hard to really think about how that would look in an ad, except you'd probably bill that as extremely stable employment. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly some stuff as machine, as metaphor there, because people are uh, not people, whatever these galactic entities are. Entities. <laughs> like there's demons, beings. there's other things too. I mean, they are like filed off in terms of like, like Michael is the exception, right? Like he was given permission to do something completely different. But like you'll hear people or not people, you'll hear demons talk about the fact that like, look, I've just I've been flaying people for eons and that's what I know how to do. And you're asking me to do something else now. Can we go back to flaying people? Oh, sounds like everything's going well back there, too. We're trying out the new butthole spiders. Huh? They're enormous. 
you know, good old-fashioned torture, the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? Yeah. So the, very mechanistic in that way. I actually thought of this as more of a political system. And Kim, you can certainly correct me if I'm interpreting this incorrectly. But I see it as, I mean, it is called the Bureau of Human Affairs, right? So it's already more of like a political organization than a, I would say, corporate organization. Um, it's, it's dim. It's very gray. Uh, but more importantly, I see a lot of... I see a lot of jockeying for position. Who gets the credit for doing things? Uh, who's who's on top? Who's getting the next promotion? Uh, so to me, this was a really good illustration of what it means to think of your culture as a political system. Debate uh, <laughs> on that one. So I, I do agree. I think I think you raised some really good points. What is fascinating to me is who sits atop this organization, and that's the judge. And the judge is seen as like, you know, a, a, an interesting character, but also somewhat a rational being. And the name is the judge, right? It's not. So there are some like rational debates happening. So atop this very political jockeying, you have a rational figure. You know, she's rational, but also they say that she sits around watching like trash TV all day. And she seems to. I think it's CSI. A, CSI. I, you take your judgment elsewhere. <laughs> And she seems to have occasionally in some of the episodes I watched, she seemed to have the hots for Chidi. So I don't know how rational. Again, take your judgment elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's rational to have the hots for Chidi. I would argue, though, she is more of a. Uh, there's. I don't feel like there's as much of a reporting structure. Like, yes, she is definitely the judge. She's, but almost more of an auditor. As opposed to, like, they're not reporting to her and giving her status updates, and she's not directing how they're doing their work. She's a very aloof manager, if a manager at all. I she's will more like, Yeah, that. she's more like the chair, chairman of the board, Yeah, in a way. But we actually don't know if there are other beings that, in, you know, involved in this organization, right? I yeah. think it might be above her. Or we also don't really know, like, what the general purpose of this organization is. True. I mean, divine mystery and all, but... I mean, it feels like it's to torture people, right? It's to weigh and measure people, and that's where they end up in their afterlife. Only we've discovered that's a flawed system. Yeah. And it's all people. Well, yes. Except for whatever her name is, who exists in the middle place. What is it like? Cindy St. Clair. Yeah. St. Clair. (laughs) No. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we've got we've got some arguments for uh, for a political system. We've got some arguments for the machine. Machine. Uh, Kim, any? Do you want to weigh in on that? And yeah. Th- this is not the final call. We'll we'll debate this throughout the podcast today. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing for me about the good place is it's definitely a bureaucracy. Yeah. But that, of course, everybody's appointed in their positions for I don't want to say for life, really for eternity. Since people have been, you know, Feels they talk like about, <laughs> it certainly does when you're in the cube farm there. But, you know, talk, people talk about, well, I don't, my shift isn't over for another 80,000 years. So, you know, so it's forever. It feels like forever, but at the same time, there are definitely characters talking about promotions. Mm-hmm. Like it is a very promotional and hierarchical driven mm-hmm. culture. As a result of our success, I'm getting a seat on the high council. We will greatly expand our neighborhood idea and you will oversee the entire project. You are being promoted. Your senior staff pin. Congratulations. This is everything you've ever wanted. This is everything I've ever wanted. 
And I would, I'm just going to throw a monkey wrench in the works here by thinking that there's also a certain amount of um, the metaphor of flux and transformation that's at play in this whole world. <laughs> so I'm thinking about the IHOP, right? The international, no, the interdimensional whole of the hell was that <laughs> with the time knife with the time knife yes, yes and the need noggles yes right and where where everything oh, is yeah yeah right just completely uh, um every, it, where nobody can figure out what's going on it's in 16 dimensions it's really dangerous you're always about to fall off you and you might if you make a wrong move you might end up flying around the room as a bug or worse and that to me is so completely different than the image of organism that that's the the universe at large right mm -hmm. and that's so completely different from the formalized bureaucracy with the straight apollonian lines of of that they're creating all this order around things and that just puts me in in mind of a lot of current you know, the current economic outlook where people are hitting change at an alarmingly fast rate. Nobody really knows which way is up. There's so much going on that nobody can possibly be on top of it. And so that's a that's a thing where people sort of react to that by forming really uh, authoritarian regimes and look, these deck chairs bureaucracy. are neatly arranged, Kim. Yes, exactly. And they're color coded. And they're they're arranged in out know, they're alphabetized, right? And, I hear what you're saying, but look at this arrangement. <laughs> and so the so people that's what I'm thinking about is that maybe the universe is acknowledged to be flux and transformation, and the and the hierarchies and bureaucracies are a reaction against. That. So I want to give a little uh, love to one of our trolls on the internet. So we wrote up an article about <laughs> Gareth Morgan's uh, eight organizational metaphors. And one of the first comments was, flux and transformation isn't a metaphor, because I don't know what it means. Well, you can't argue with that. <laughs> well, in that case. <laughs> yeah. So to put you on the spot a little bit, how would you define that for our, our nice friend on the internet? It, that it's a, okay, so the, that, that perspective comes from the idea that it's, that we, it's a closed system. That everything we're operating in, if something that has, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings in one spot and volcanoes erupt in another spot. And we don't know how they're related, but somehow that this caused butterfly. the other one, right? Yes. And so so that's the idea, not of an open system, which people, people discuss a lot, but of a closed system where everything is related to everything, but you can't really... Um, tell what the consequences are going to be. And so that's kind of related to complexity theory when you're thinking about how um, so, so, things may appear to go along in a very logical chain of events and then all of a sudden um, something happens and now we're doing going in a completely different way and it was unpredictable. Yeah. I mean, check me if I'm wrong. I also assumed as I was digging into this, organization as organism is this idea that like the environment around you changes so you should change in response flux and transformation is it the theory behind that is that those changes aren't as neat as cause and effect right yes exactly it's like not... you are changing which also changes the environment which also has repercussions for you and that these may not be foreseeable right. because it's a complex system right yeah exactly so the the metaphor with with the organisms we're often thinking about say uh, a pond 
and you've got your frogs that perform one function and your fish that perform another function and the cattails on and on and it's all part of an ecosystem but that implies a certain amount of stasis yeah and so therefore you know you get a few more tadpoles this year and suddenly all bets are off everything's different i feel like if you watch the good place and you're into like like studying philosophy, you'll dig this topic, and we're not making your ears bleed yet. At, at this point, when we're we're actually in the recording season, season four has not come out. I know. I would not be surprised if it actually does become a metaphor for flux and transformation, because already we're seeing that the existing system of judging humans has failed. It is inaccurate. They've they've proven that people can actually change after death, right? Mm-hmm. And so. They're having the the entities that be right are actually having to reevaluate how they evaluate humans. And so I would not be surprised if there is that discussion of, wait, how do we actually how do how do these organizations that live above humans change in response to the changing moral environment? Definitely, definitely. And especially because there's some some reason to believe i think what they said was that there was nobody going to heaven for like the last 521 years right so something happened that there was something that happened and changed in the system that threw everything off and so this nice neatly mechanistic universe is no longer functioning properly that sounds like flux and transformation to me i blame the printing press evil book learning i mean it actually you 500 years ago it might that that might be it like that literally might could be, be the printing the, press yeah. could be columbus quote-unquote discovering america well now i want to find out what happened five was it actually 521 it's my We're recollection gonna... but it's uh, <laughs> it could be faulty i'm gonna have to go look this when up. we watch when we base an episode of work of fiction off three shows Dear listeners, we're a little fuzzy on some details. (laughs) Changing things up a little, let's consider your pretty face is going to hell, aka pretty face. What's that like? If you haven't seen it, it's on Adult Swim. Maybe it's not the most popular show, but Uh, it sure is weird. This is is definitely more of a a cult film. The the premise quickly is that it, it is literally hell as an office. And it is very much a cubicle farm. Yep. And I think they, they're they wearing little polo shirts that have the Hell logo. Yeah. It says Hell Co. Or it looks a lot like, like Sprint or Verizon, the and, logo. And Burning Man, but. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I do see that now. Huh. Both hot places. It's true. Lots of fire. Yeah. To me, it actually, it did remind me of the feeling of an office space. And so in some ways, I thought it was a little bit outdated, if you will, like an outdated portrayal of an office. I'm sure that there are definitely still people working in these types of offices, but it's a little bit more like... like it's a little 1997, yes. Yeah, yeah, with the with the pullers. Um, anyway, so what do we what do we think of... Instrument of domination, yeah. all the way, all the way, all Whoa. the way. Two thumbs up. I, I mean, right. literally, the second episode of the show, Satan is sleeping with one of the demon's girlfriends, and he makes the demon like keep the house on the market so he can continue to sleep with his girlfriend in the house. It's just, and I mean, how could I miss this too? Also, one of your punishments in hell is that you are the urinal. All right, at least we're not in the stalls. That's when things get ugly. <laughs> Been there, done that, Jason. I can't hack it here, man. There's nothing you can do about it, so just be a professional. 
Yes. <laughs> so when you have a bathroom break, it's somebody else's yeah, bathroom on break you. that you are involved in. Yeah. The the break room is really just a small box of like rotating knives that yep. you get shoved into. You need a break, Paula. I didn't I didn't quite get the well, you know what, what, there, but okay. What's really interesting about this is that obviously the customers are the tortured souls, but that the people the employees are getting the same treatment basically as the customers yeah so usually we actually encourage that in organizations <laughs> like we we always say you know your your brand should be consistent for both your customer and your employee experience because that's often the you best live way that brand yeah to attract to attract new cost uh to attract employees is to be famous for what you do yeah uh this is one instance where i would actually not maybe, recommend it maybe not yeah you know, in, in preparing for this episode, I read up on the Stanford prison experiment, and I discovered some interesting what stuff. What a great job. <laughs> Isn't it a great job? So, um, the, you know, a lot of people remember this uh, Philip Zimbardo who went on to, to really delve deeply into the psychology of evil after this experiment. <laughs> but so, we, you know, a lot of people learn about the Stanford prison experiment in their college psychology classes. And so it's a famous idea where they, they brought in a bunch of people who they'd already certified. They were undergraduates at Stanford. They were all male. They'd certified them as psychologically healthy and then divided them into prisoners and guards and then let the madness ensue where the guards would start to exploit the prisoners and everybody would... Um, it would and it would just be Lord of the Flies from on from then on. So somebody repeated. Of course, this was done before IRBs and institutional uh, research boards that allow you to um, to that make sure that you're giving humane conditions to your research subjects and a whole bunch of other controls. And so, even though this is a really famous experiment, there's a lot of reasons to believe that it might not really describe the whole picture of humanity. So some people in, um, in England repeated this experiment, this time with all the proper controls in place, um, in the early 2000s to see what would happen. And they came up with very different results. They had the one, the, the, but the finding, they have, a, they have a lot of different things, but the finding I want to do here is that they had two scenarios. One was where the prisoners were able to, um, if they were good and excelled at their, at being prisoners, they would, there was a path where they could become guards. Upward mobility. Upward mobility. Career progression. Okay, but that really is psychic prison, right? Psychic because prison. that is ultimately controlling what it is that you do. And it is forcing you to become your own oppressor. Yes. And that is something that, that my long-winded way of saying this is that that's the situation that you have in Pretty Face, which is that tortured souls can go end up going to work with the company. I can't really say that their lives are a whole lot better. But they, they <laughs> if you can call it afterlife a life, but that's, um, but what that tended to do is to keep the, the current system of domination in place. If there mm. was a way that a few people could get promoted, but when there was not, when you took that away, when there was not a way and prisoners were going to be prisoners forever and guards were going to be guards forever, then what happened was all, it was all about bonding within those two groups. And so they would, um, the better organized and bonded, the better the better they bonded together, the better organized they would become. Mm. And then there would be actually sort of coups and takeovers and try to and going in a democratic direction and then later going in an authoritarian direction. And it's pretty interesting. All right. 
And then looking at my favorite, of course, the law firm of Milton Chadwick Waters from Devil's Advocate. How would you describe that particular culture? What makes it different than Pretty Face or Good Place? Hmm. You know, that that's it's interesting because that too, that's a movie from the 90s. So it's still got a very much a, a bureaucratic angle on things where there's levels of hierarchy. But to me, that's more of a political system. So in this case, at the top, you've got Satan. And, you know, always in these situations... <laughs> <laughs> inevitable Sorry, of course always in this situation so really it's an upside down hierarchy but yeah <laughs> i mean okay but yes he literally lives at the top of the tower as opposed to like in the penthouse as opposed to underground it that's is true he could have had an underground layer i suppose yeah, yeah. terrible views <laughs> but i and so it's revealed in the movie that he is controlling most from that spot in the law firm, controlling most of the evil systems of the world. Because the law, my boy, puts us into everything. It's the ultimate backstage pass. It's the new priesthood, baby. Yeah, I did notice that. And of course, it's because lawyers are are the the key, right? They're yes, the entry they're point the, to all the of currency these different organizations. The, well, the currency is the is the rules of the game, which is what the lawyers are working on. I loved it because it was this portrayal of a law firm in the 90s, like a, you know, white shoe law firm. And it's very, the, the 90s, we sort of thought lawyers were the bad guy. Like they were your just standard, like you need a bad guy. Like think of um, even in Jurassic Park, right? One of the first guys to get eaten by the Tyrannosaurus Rex is the lawyer and everybody cheers when he gets eaten they on the They really toilet. needed a lawyer though. <laughs> <laughs> There's some indemnification that must happen at that park. <laughs> You know what? They're looking for lawyers who can say yes, not just who can say no. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Work with us here. Um, I want to I want to put forth the argument that the law firm of Milton is actually a cultural system because uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. It is really all about conforming and buying into the way of doing things there. So you'll see that everybody dresses the same, everybody goes to like they Everybody smokes. That's one of the cultural uh, signifiers of this organization. And of course, smoking is evil because it's the 90s, right? Like it's a shorthand for evil. Also going out late night to, mm -hmm. to parties and fraternizing with your colleagues. I mean, people literally live in the same building. All the partners live in the same building and then they go to the same law firm and it's all this <laughs> literally incestuous uh, <laughs> workplace. So... Yeah, so this idea of organization as culture, this is the idea that the company is a mini society, right? And you're really trying to create coherence around values and beliefs. And there are a lot of great things about this metaphor, but it also can create cults and organizations. Yeah, it definitely does create cults. You say that like that's a bad thing. <laughs> I've got some Kool-Aid over here. Well, the thing about... Uh cultures is that we really underestimate the extent to which the culture we're in controls the experiences that we have right so culture you know at large society has been tied to um all kinds of emotional outcomes basically how we interpret the signals our bodies are giving us is tied to what culture we're in and so cultures are a way of creating meaning around mm -hmm. individual experiences and I, I agree with the culture metaphor i think that it is about acculturation and I think there's there's kind of that hook there, you know, in the in that in Al Pacino's final speech, he's talking about how 
God is a absentee landlord and he's giving you all of these impossible choices. Taste! Don't swallow. And I feel like that's kind of what the law firm is doing too, because they're, they're, they're pretending that it's your free will that, well, you were vain and so you decided to choose getting ahead over your taking care of your sick wife or whatever, o over and over this happens. Except that it's not really because you're so enmeshed in a culture that values that. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to really call that free will. I'll be honest. I went into Devil's Advocate thinking that we would focus mostly on the character of Satan. I mean, like, that's a pretty obvious metaphor. Your boss is literally Satan. But I actually came out of this movie being like, oh, this is actually a parable about work-life balance. <laughs> Right? Like, that's that's what it comes to. Don't go to. overboard. Yeah. Like, yeah, take how some do leave you... time, family leave, please. Yeah. Like, what do you do when you have a really important project going on at work, but your family is also sick? How do you balance those needs? Well, maybe. So, okay. So, you brought up the fact that it's about lawyers and about how, like, they're the representation of evil in the 90s. I think they're actually the representation of overwork. Like, everyone I know who's worked at a law firm, especially your first, like, two or three years, even my friends who are, like, on the partner track now have haven't seen daylight unless they're like literally going out to court yeah and so i think it's actually a perfect metaphor for overwork yeah but there's a it's greed right like that's what you put well, in the work because you want the money and the perks and it's it is literally a faustian bargain huge right? generalization what alert. are you well it's in a this film in, this, in film. this film it's a faustian bargain but you know you go to law school and 110 hours a week and is considered normal for first year of law school which is insane um and i you know there's a lot of lawyers turned positive psychologists because they're hoping to use some of this knowledge to cure the um legal profession or because they're just trying to recover themselves and get remember what life mm -hmm. was supposed to be about there's all but there's so it is a faustian bargaining but i don't think it's quite as cut and dried as just greed i mean when i would look at it now maybe in the i think in the 90s people had more flexibility to um choose a profession that suited them and not just the the thing they can think of where they'll make the most money hmm. and so i think that you know in recent years um law school attendance has been um people have been applying to law school but the jobs have also been drying up a little bit so it's no longer the guaranteed and of security that it might once have looked like so now we're in a situation in the 90s it was like you sell outs and now we're in a position where people are trying to sell out and and not succeeding <laughs> wow that's please okay. someone buy me yeah. <laughs> that was great all right so to recap hell as portrayed in these different organizations it's not maybe one pure metaphor we're seeing a variety or a mix of metaphors but we're hearing uh, psychic prison, we're hearing instrument of domination, cultural and political system, some amount of a mechanistic, again, we're cogs in the machine. Did I miss any? I think we almost nailed every Gareth Morgan metaphor in there, except maybe organism. Yeah, we're not really seeing a lot of organism in there because yeah. we're not really thinking about the larger um, Hell doesn't really change. It's kind of fixed. Right, and, and also because nobody can really come up with a good idea of why you would want to do this big Earth experiment and see what makes them beings and then run them through all of this. So, you know, again, if you're, gonna, if you're going to go for that purpose, then this is definitely a simulation. Right. Please, is, were you just saying that we don't know the meaning of life? I so. was just saying we don't know the meaning of life, yeah. <laughs> I actually think that is a really good point in that 
uh, no one in hell has a growth mindset. It is very <laughs> set, right? Well, isn't that like, what The Good Place is about? It's about like introducing a growth mindset into the afterlife, which is shocking for everyone. Well, questioning purposes. It's about what are we actually trying to do here? What are we trying to achieve? Are we achieving our goal? Yeah. All right. So we're going to come back to this towards the end. And I'm going to ask you guys why you think, again, hell is such a popular way to explore the workplace. But for right now, I want us to think a little bit about what specifically makes offices hellish, right? Like, what is it that we hate about our jobs that we're seeing portrayed in these different organizations? Uh, So the first thing that came to my mind watching these things was, not surprisingly, office politics, right? You're not there to just do your job and get a paycheck. You have to manage the other individuals and manage the power relationships in the organization. Yeah, and I'd add to that that there's an idea that if you have more power than you not only can, but automatically would obviously abuse anybody who has less power than you. So sort of domination for its own hedonistic sake. Yeah. I'm reminded of the movie The Election, just about the idea that even the most pure form of like a school election can turn into like a terrible, terrible experience for everyone involved because that's what happens when you start to engage power in any system. Yeah, we see this in a couple of ways in these different works. So in Pretty Face, Claude actually starts as an intern, but by pandering to the boss uh, and by getting his colleague Gary in trouble, he's able to Claude's work. good at his job, though. He too. is. Cl- Claude he's, is good at his job. He's a damn good intern. <laughs> no, he is. And we absolutely want to encourage upward mobility, which I, which I do think is interesting because, again, even though hell is technically a fixed place, there's still there's always an opportunity to move up or, I guess, down the ladder. Uh, in terms of, of where you are, but there is a very clearly established pecking order. That's a complete report of every mistake you've made, every screw-up, every reboot, all laid out in excruciating detail. Now, I'm sure your boss would love to hear all about how attempt number two is really going. <laughs> so actually, if you don't do what I say, you're going down. Uh, and then, of course, Eddie Barzoon. Eddie Barzoon. He gets jealous that Kevin Lomax is quickly becoming Milton's favorite. He feels like, I've been putting all this time, right? Like, you you can't just show up and think you can run this firm. So, now you're a partner. When did that happen? You know, I still am the managing director of this firm. You want my job? Take me head on. You backdoor me one more time, I'll take your partnership papers and I'll shove them down your throat. Yeah, and I think, I don't know, for me, when I was learning about the organizations as metaphors, it was so powerful that you, that any organization is multiple at any time and everyone has a mental, has a mixed mental model. And while you also have to like get tasks done, you're also engaged in a political system. You're also thinking about change and things like that. And so I, I think it's, one of the things that, that I think is important in my career is I would evaluate new jobs from a very mechanistic point of view when I was thinking about work. Like, what's the task I need to do here? And can I do that task? I'm a white male, so I'm pretty sure I can do that task. <laughs> um, but then you, like, now that I've gotten older, I'm much more interested in sort of, like, who's the who are the political players in that environment and, like, that being a big part of the job. But I was not engaged in that in any way when I was younger. What are some of the root causes? You're never going to avoid politics entirely anytime you're talking with humans, right? There's there's going to be power dynamics involved. 
But when we go into an organization and people are describing it of Game of Thrones or Hunger Games, where does that come from? Why are politics so prevalent within organizations? So I can think of several different um, factors that make politics start to rise to the top and start to control everything. And one of them is a tolerance for bad behavior as long as there's good results. So if we're putting, pe if we're putting people's quarterly earnings or, or uh, ability to meet their sales quotas over how they're behaving as a human, then, you're go then the assholes will rise to the top. Um, another one is the ability for objective measures, you know, and really cultures where things are very subjective. And I'm thinking here about fashion and entertainment. And we, you know, we have data and we use it, but ultimately it's a matter of taste and, and individual, um, that at the individual level, rather than something that we can measure, then that becomes places where people develop kind of a charismatic mystique. And then they wield a lot of power and nobody can really tell them no, because you're like, well, we need you to figure out how we're going to do the thing and you seem to be able to do it and other people can't so we'll let you run wild um so that has a tendency to foment um cultures i have a completely have a unformed thought to build on that i can't wait yeah so i tell this, us this, white male <laughs> coming in hot um so this reminds me of uh the work of dr robert sapolsky and his work with baboons and the idea that basically he finds he finds them one detestable because they're assholes he will say that <laughs> but too interesting because they're just intelligent enough that they can satisfy their basic needs pretty easily mm -hmm. in their environments and then they're left with all this free time yep and in that free time they create a lot of like political jockeying and stress and domination on each other and so i actually my my mildly unformed thought is like politics tend to rise up in organizations where we know how to solve that problem already are you telling me that idle hands are the devil's work yeah Play around? <gasps> Um, so, but one of the other things that I think about with this, you know, overall, it's basically when we're not, when there's reward for thinking just individually and not for thinking about an extended sense of yeah. group success is probably when you're going to have a lot of politics. Yeah. So just saying the word we isn't enough to do it, although people use that as signaling all the time. But just to have a to but to have a we mentality and a team mentality rather than an individual really rewarded mentality is um, that's part of how you can set up incentives and that's part of how you can incentivize better behavior rather than having hmm. political politics dominate. If you're in a political system, if you recognize that you're in an organization which has a lot of politics, do you play the game? What is the best way to survive? What are your options for gaining power or staying away from this game entirely within your team well opting out you can't opt out you can't responsibly opt out you may wish to be say that you're above all this and being pure but really what you're doing is you're playing the game in a really ineffective way you're not you know if you want if you you're ned stark <laughs> yes yeah, so there ned rolls stark. your head there rolls your head and the heads of your family so if you can't do it for yourself do it for the people you care about mm. all right so if you can't opt out if you're going to if you're going to play the game, what is the best way to to navigate a political system? Well, there's a lot of sort that would bring us back to the sources of power. How do you even get power? What kind of power do people have? So there's power. There's what you call legitimate power, which means that you have a title, which makes people get in line. You have expertise, for example, which so if you're the one who really knows what's going on in a certain domain that's important to people, then you have some power there. There's power from building alliances so that if you, you know are golfing with the CEO and they're, they've got your back 
or your, you know, your Hamilton and the, you've got the president's ear, then that's a source of power right there. Yeah, what I've found interesting is so many people we've worked with have decided to play the game and they've played a good game and then they find themselves at the top of the, the pyramid and one, hate their job. Yep. Two, they hate the fact that it's a political system, but now they're one of the key players in that political mm-hmm. system and they're not dismantling it. And it's an unconscious participation almost to them at that stage. Like me, I'm the political player. <laughs> no, I'm doing this to survive here. Yeah, exactly. So many that that kind of makes me think about the banality of evil, which is something that I hope we'll get into at some point here. Well, what do you want to say about it? Tell tell us about the banality of evil. The banality of evil. The idea. <laughs> the idea is that you are just quote unquote just doing your job. You're carrying out operations. Um, in a fairly self-focused way you're doing what people ask of you you're just trying to get your paycheck or whatever but you're really perpetuating a larger system that is exploiting people or the environment or generally doing bad in the world but you're comfortable enough so you're not really saying anything about it and it's just routine yeah i was just following orders i was just following orders or that's just what you have to do to get by yeah i didn't make the rules here yeah, and I don't know, this comes back to me in the political systems. You have like, very you have to examine what the purpose of the system is, right? And if the purpose of the system is like dark and sinister and extractive and exploitive, then no, I would say don't play the game, right? Like I think we have to abandon those systems in some way. Um, but isn't there – but just turning your back on it. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Ah, <laughs> it's the name of the movie. Yeah. Again, I want thunder cracks on all these. <laughs> um, if, but how can you, if you don't accrue power, how are you going to change the system? Mm. You tear it down from the inside. What? <laughs> no, it's a really good question. And I think it's one, a lot of people in organizations are struggling with right now. I think, I think you do, I think you have to make a call about like ultimately what is going to work for you. If it's going to destroy you to try to like with like wield political power inside an organization, then mm-hmm. I'm not sure. In the Devil's Advocate, right? We see we see this this knife essentially. Kevin Lomax's half sister is going to conceive the Antichrist with him, and then the implication is she's going to kill him off because his purpose will be fulfilled, right? And so there is there is that warning there is that possibility that even if you think you are the most powerful person right someone is coming for you and i think that's part of definitely part of what makes these offices hell right right and and so a lot of people have this idea that having a really competitive cutthroat culture is somehow better for the work but there's a lot of research that says that if people are paying you know if people often spend like 40% of their time just on politics, not doing the work. And that's that you're just going to have lower performance on that than if you were, are able to more focus on working together to get things actually done. Okay. Another thing that we see portrayed very frequently is this idea of uselessness or futility, right? That's what makes your job hell. And I think you feel this no matter what level of the organization you're in. So in, in pretty face, Gary is, He's just not good at his job. He fails at pretty much every mission that he has given. There's just a level of incompetence or a lack of progress. 
uh, in The Devil's Advocate, we see that it it feels like Kevin has escaped, right? In the end, we realize it was all a dream. And so he, he can change his course and he can escape. He doesn't have to experience that. But of course, then he just ends up getting ensnared in a different way. Because mm-hmm. the... Vanity. The, the original sin, right, is, yeah. is still there. He can't escape, in a way, his human nature. And in The Good Place, we actually discover that designing a hell in which people torture each other is almost impossible. Like, they always figure it out. And this drives poor Michael to distraction. I mean, he goes through hundreds of iterations and essentially the passage of 300 years. And he still can't get it right. So no matter what he tries, uh, it's it's extremely frustrating. In fact, when, when Michael tries to introduce this new idea... Um, he faces a ton of skepticism from his colleagues, right? Like, oh, that'll, that'll never work. I think you'd be lucky to get six months out of this insane gambit. Take me through it. Yeah, was wondering what other examples of uselessness or futility you've seen in these, in these different works. I would like to just point out that as a 16-year-old, I wrote, a, I think, a 35-page paper on futility in fiction. <laughs> 35 pages, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stopping was never a problem. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, it's it's the it's actually one of the reasons I I started Nobel now nearly five years ago because I I was doing very futile work, which was like I was creating new ideas and prototypes and products and services for companies that went nowhere, um, and I felt like the teams I was supporting inside these organizations were feeling that lack of efficacy as well. Of like we keep saying we're going to change but we're not changing um and so i yeah i think that is in a world that we're more defined by change outside the organization i feel like people are really suffering from this right now i agree absolutely the people are suffering from it because there's again if we're we're dealing with a a world where flux and transformation is the overarching metaphor then a lot of things you're doing just aren't working out and you can't really figure out why because it's not like uh, a, a mechanistic system yeah. And at the same time, you know, with my psychology hat on, the, uh, the about the most demotivating. It's an adorable hat. Yeah, cute. Yeah. Um, about the most demotivating thing that you can do is to um, not use people's work product. Yeah. So it's not so. That's part of the reason why we always are, are going around thanking each other for doing their work, not because we want need to show gratitude, but we just need to show that you what you do matters and people see it. Yeah. A lot of the low-grade irritation is portrayed, I think, in relation to this idea of uselessness or futility. And we'll talk about torture a little bit later, but it's this idea of frustrating tech, right? Like the conference call that just won't go through. You're you're stuck mm. trying to troubleshoot that. Or the meetings, which just go on forever. You've got old computers uh, there's one scene in The Good Place where a lava monster thinks he's booked the conference room. There's a 14 million point plan, right? It's just these, this endless low grade. I mean, like nothing individually is all that terrible. It's just this cumulative effect of annoyance. My version of this now is I'm on so many conference calls where it was someone has terrible audio. Oh, and like, yeah. so I'm sitting at a desk listening to calls all day with like... <sighs> In the background while I'm trying to discern what people are saying. And I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> what, what are you going to do, bud? I'm going to lose it. Yeah. 
there's a lot of annoyance and just grading problems. Yeah. Like so that. Why is that? I mean, aside from the human condition, again, <laughs> we're working most of us in like pretty comfortable situations. We've got ergodynamic chairs and we've got air conditioning and we probably have snacks, which are maybe a little bit bad for us, right? But like, this is it. This is peak civilization, everybody. And yet everybody's kind of miserable and annoyed. So I'm I'm just curious as to like why you think again these little the human condition. I feel like I feel like <laughs> if earlier we landed on there's no meaning to life, we've now landed on it's kind of miserable too to be a bag of meat with teeth. I, I think that is something actually. There's something to that, which is just that I mean that's part of the philosophical position is that life is suffering and that there always there's always going to be suffering. So even if we were, uh, you know. No, if we, I, I'm not sure how to improve this basement that we're sitting in, actually. But you know, if we could make this the most perfect thing in the world, we'd still find something to to criticize. I mean, that's the idea of the hedonic treadmill, which is that when we, when you are missing something and then you get it satisfied, that makes you happy for a little while, and then you forget about it, and now you're focused on other bad things. Yeah. Well, the idea of heaven, right? We think about it, and you like you float away in your pure energy, and like you get to meet. Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> I, I was waiting. I'm like, who are we like, meeting who here? Who does Bud meet in heaven? <laughs> I think that's a solid choice. You know, just knock it out with the Thunderbirds. Anyways, um, but you, you know, you were detached from that human experience. Hell should be the opposite of it, where it's just like constantly you have gas, right? She's just like, just terrible. It's just terrible. Yeah, but not, but not awful like you never again it's never the like it's you, you, the we, flaming pits and the the chains and and saws. it's true like even in the good place they talk a lot about things like let's just go back to stuffing wasps in people's noses but they don't really show that there is a scene in pretty face where somebody does shove a bowling ball up someone's butt um are you gonna pull down your pants or no just you can just it? push it through i don't care about these pants Am I just supposed yeah. to shove oh, it? Oh, yeah, just shove it right in there. It doesn't seem like it's going to fit. Oh, yeah, it never does. Are you doing it the Gary way? Through their <laughs> pants, by the way. <laughs> through their pants. I was wondering about how that was going to work. Well, it's like, it's like okay, so we're on the topic of futility. The myth of Sisyphus is the idea that, um, you know, you roll up the boulder every single day. Wait, I'm going to get this wrong. Scratch this. Edit this out. I'm thinking about I... the, the myth of Prometheus. No, no, oh. no. That well, was... the Sisyphus, although it made me yeah, put the... me in mind of the bowling ball, was the problem. No, you're no, right. Sure. Sisyphus was the one rock. who was yeah. the rock, but the but Prometheus, his version of hell. So he's the one who gave us knowledge and empowered man. After Zeus was like, humans are stupid. He Not wrong. every single day had to have his liver eaten out by a crow, I believe. Eagle, eagle, sure, crow, <laughs> eagle. Just a you know pigeon. They're both cool. I get a tattoo of either. Um, but that you know, I think you get used to that. But, like, this idea of, like, just these, like, random annoyances that just continue forever. That sounds worse. So you're saying you'd rather have your liver eaten every single day than sit on another conference call with bad audio. I mean, this is where I'm at in life. (laughs) Fair enough. As a leader, then, as leaders, what can we do to give meaning to people's work and to make them feel like their job is better than having their liver torn out on a daily basis? Um, well, you know, you can't make people feel things, but what you can do is, uh, help people, you know, if people have something that would be meaningful to them, help them achieve it. Yeah. I, I would just like, there's, 
we do things like project retros with teams and the thing that is the hardest to train a team on to do is just like what should we stop doing like what are those things that we repeat over and over and over again that we never use that never actually generate any forward momentum to a project let's get rid of that stuff because so much of that like the longer an organization exists without doing that sort of reflection the more busy work the more bureaucracy that is there just to serve some sort of idea of what worked in the past at one point exists and also helping people if you have an opportunity to connect people with the people who are benefiting from their work yeah that's very motivating so in our work, we work with a lot of companies and, you know, we get singles all the time. We get a lot of doubles, we get a lot of triples, but sometimes we get home runs. And I feel like that's the stuff that keeps us going through all of the work that's necessary. So when we get to actually have contact with people who say, oh, my God, I think this really changed the way we're doing things and we're just on so much of a better foot now. That's the stuff that that keeps us going at least that's what keeps me going no my favorite thing is when we have a client with retail outlets and then like literally take people from headquarters to those stores or restaurants or whatever it is so that they can actually see how something they decided or some choice they made is actually impacting people yeah both positive and negative but that's what i love the most it's like let's go let's go visit yeah anytime you can do that that's a that's a big win yeah so no inspirational posters on the wall is what you're telling me. Hang Please in there. Don't do that. Please no inspirational posters. What about introducing new ideas? Because Michael, for instance, he's the one who innovates on this. The time's come to innovate. The human afterlife can be more fun. Us, obviously, not for the people we're torturing. Let's get people to torture each other, right? And this is immediately greeted with or disdain, like it's never going to work. What's wrong with good old-fashioned torture, right? So how do you bring new ideas? How do you start to infuse this idea of, hey, we can change, we can do different things within our organization so that our lives aren't always empty and meaningless? I mean, this is when the organization as metaphor really comes into play for me because we're really talking about how do you get people excited about new ideas and get them on board with them. And depending on how they view their organization, they, you may be completely off and you don't know how to like think about it or tailor your case to it. Um, you know, if the good place that we're talking about, the Bureau of Human Affairs is very mechanistic, for example, then like the pitch is basically we should, we can save huge amounts of resources by having humans torture each other. Um, and that's a much more efficient process. I think, so I'm always about, like, who are we designing the pitch for internally? I'm also really worried at how quick you were to be like, well, look, if we have people torture each other, it's a real cost savings. I'm a business owner. And it has me a little bit concerned <laughs> for the future of Nobel. Look, I've got some turtles that I'm working on over here to replace you. Turtles all the way down. <laughs> What about you, Kim? Any, any anything you want to chime in on? Yeah, I introducing think, new ideas. I think that it's it's about whatever you think that the organization is attempting to do. So you got to tie it into the purpose of the organization. So people come up with stuff. I think that like perhaps in, in the good place, Michael came up with this just because he was bored and it's like, hey, let's try something new randomly. Sure. And they do have a tried and true that they've been doing for eons, I suppose. Eternity. Eternity. So that's kind of a big, you know, this, this is a side project. It was probably kind of like a pilot team. Let's try this. And if it works, we'll spread it around, right? So that's one way to do it the way they're doing it, which is let's rather than make all of 
hell into this right off the bat. Let's see if we can just make it work on a side project. What we call a skateboard. A skateboard. I just love the idea of like, well, you know, if you're in hell, yes, a lot of time is going to be spent on torturing people. But put, a po- you know, find that 20% time. <laughs> Take time to really 20% time problem, in hell. The problem is hell's a monopoly, really. Like there, there's not like a like an Uber for torture popping up to compete with you. So there is a, you know, the tried and true tends to continue to work. But another aspect of hell, though, I think is not really knowing what this is all about, not having a big picture. Right. Right. Because I think a lot of the in, in the hells that we've seen here, we don't really know why we're trying to do all this. Like even in The Devil's Advocate, it came as a surprise to Kevin Lomax that this law firm had their hand in pretty much every horrible thing happening on the planet. Yeah. This is why, though, uh, your pretty face is going to hell is the more effective hell in one way for me. Because everyone on Earth knows this hell exists, and they're constantly on television being idiots, but they're, like, saying, a hell exists. Like, hell, if if there is a meaning behind hell, right, it's to torture people so that people act better, right? There's, that could be one goal of it. But if your hell is secret, if people don't know it exists, and you can debate it, how effective can your hell be? But if you're on TV every day showing crazy stuff that you're doing, more effective. But you're really concerning me with like your recommendations for how hell could I've be got, improved. I've got a keynote presentation I've been working on. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Yeah. yeah I'm, like you're very passionate about this subject. I mean, okay. Okay. Let's take a moment. Let's take a moment. Okay. No competition. Uh, dedicated workforce that can't go anywhere. Yes. This is a great business model. <laughs> I'm not. It, it's still like question mark. Profit. It's underpant gnomes territory, but well, I think I think you know you don't actually need to think about monetary rewards. I think torture for demons is a reward in itself, so it is very self motivating. Said like Paula would say, yes, yeah, <laughs> the intrinsic motivation of torturing others. Hmm. I mean, go. again, instruments of domination, guys. <laughs> like that's that's what this comes down to. All right, let's talk about. I want to say like the most obvious thing, which. Uh, honestly, I feel like speaking of monopolies, Dilbert has a monopoly on this, but the boss as Satan, right? Like your boss is the literal devil. And here we have. Is there something you want to tell me, Paula? No, no. We're just we're just talking about what we see on 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 our screens. Um, I'll tell you, bud. Oh, I'll tell you. Uh, in the Devil's Advocate, of course, we literally have Satan who goes by the name John Milton. He's not really subtle in this particular film. He's kind of evil because he wants, you know, Kevin to sleep with his half-sister and to conceive the Antichrist and bring on the end times. So, like, yes, that's that's a pretty good definition of evil. But the more I thought about it, the more I also realized uh, he really engages in a lot of nepotism. Right? Yes, that's true. It's like, a family business. Yeah, why does it have? Why does the Antichrist have to be his progeny? Right? Can't you just? Can it not be a meritocracy where you can just select a a person who would be a great candidate for Antichrist? Even beyond that, like Eddie Barzoon is kind of portrayed as this like gross, greedy, awful character who's leading the law firm. But I was thinking about it, and I was like, Eddie Barzoon was right. He. Uh, Kevin Lomax is snatched out of obscurity in this, you know, podunk Florida town. He's brought up 
to this amazing law firm in New York City. He immediately gets the the Park Avenue apartment. He gets all the, you know, he gets money. He, he gets a partnership. It's an East Coast Beverly Hills Billy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I was Swimming like, pools, I, movie was, star. I was like, well, I was like, this is, this is nepotism. And I don't think that's very motivating for other lawyers in the firm. It would be demotivating, I would say. Yeah. And they would probably, it definitely would result in other people trying to take him down. Yeah. Uh, looking at Good Place. So I'm going to say, for all intents and purposes, Sean is Michael's boss. Yep. And I guess he's not literal Satan, but he is a higher level demon. Uh, so I think he his worst sin, right, what makes him the worst boss is that he undercuts Michael all the time. Mm-hmm. There's no belief in him whatsoever when Michael is rebooting the good place. And he says, oh, I thought through everything. You know, I have I have a lot of passion and energy for this project. Sean, Sean is basically like, you're going to fail. It will be cataclysmic and you will fail terribly. <laughs> Talk about the Pygmalion effect in reverse. Right. What is the Pygmalion effect? Oh, that's the idea that if you have, um, if you have um, positive views of the your subordinates and believe that they can do the thing, they are much more likely to do the thing than if you have neutral or negative views about it, whether or not you express them. Hmm. So comes out in, in your nonverbals. <laughs> I wish I could say that I've never seen that kind of boss outside of fiction, <laughs> but I have totally seen that boss in the real world. I've totally seen that. And we're going to come back to that in just one second. The last boss is of course, Satan from pretty face. And he's like the least bad of these evil bosses. Like he's kind of sleazy and jerky. Okay, disagree with me. He can make your hands genitals. That's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't even say which genitals, but you can guess each finger. I mean, but is that bowling balls? Is that up anuses? Okay, I, but like. Is that really worse than having your boss undercut you all the time? Well, we're going to talk about men, uh, physical and mental pain being not that different. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And he also, he never uh, misses an opportunity to belittle, unfortunately, Gary. I mean, he does actually use Gary's face as a urinal. So right. That's it's that. unfortunate. Thankfully, we have never had to coach a leader on that particular behavior, and I really hope that continues to be. <laughs> to Just be a hot tip for you guys. Yeah. Don't do that. No. Um, so shouldn't we be maybe a little bit worried about all of these portrayals as of the boss as Satan? And But this goes to your point of like, oh, I've, I have actually seen that person. I wish I could say I hadn't, but I know what they're referring to. Well, yeah. I mean, we one we under we we don't invest in training for people who end up leading other people. Two, the act of leading, while we think it's while while in a very mechanistic metaphor, feels like a rational job. It's a very emotionally intense job, and it requires resilience and authenticity and integrity and all the things that like don't come with this meat suit naturally (laughs) they're things you have to learn as you as you grow and and you're gonna like even if you even if you are somehow primed to be a great leader you're gonna make a lot of mistakes before like on your way there right and if you have any sort of trauma or if you have anything that you haven't worked out or lack of self-awareness it is 
enacted upon the people you work with. But the idea is that if you have all these extra powers, you uh, have to learn how to not abuse them. Because if yeah. you are, if you haven't learned how to not, you're going to. Right. One of the things that we see a lot with leaders, and we're talking about leadership as a concept, is this idea that people get into leadership roles not necessarily because they want to lead people, but because they either A, want to be just left alone, right? Like they want to somehow get out of that power structure and they think that if they're they're a leader, they can finally get a little bit more autonomy. Or the opposite of that is, of course, they really do want that power. They do want to be able to tell people what to do and to delegate. Whereas what we'd like to see in our leaders is more of a servant mindset or we talk about transformational leadership a lot. And Kim, I was wondering if you could fill us in on on those different types of leaders. Sure. So, you know, the best kind of leader, and there's a lot of different schools of thought about this, whether it's a servant leader or a transformational leader, but the idea is that they are transforming other people. They're creating leaders, other leaders, wherever they go, rather than, say, a narcissistic or charismatic leader uh, who is trying to get uh, more control and more power over everything. Mm. So transformational leaders um, empower people and develop their people. And that's really the big difference um, that we're going for. So a lot of people are attracted to leadership just for the things you just said, Paula, because they want more power or they want the achievement or other self-oriented reasons. And it's true that um, narcissists and sociopaths tend to be very good at leadership because there's a lot of things about... Well, thank you. I thought so too. <laughs> because there's a lot of things about, um, even if it's like subclinical, when people are sociopathic, they think very strategically. When their people are Machiavellian, they're not afraid to use, to play politics in order to get what they want. When people are narcissistic, um, they often develop an awful lot of charisma that people like to follow. And so pe people who have those dark triad traits do tend to show up in leadership in larger numbers. There's something about you not blinking, Paula, that makes me want to follow you anywhere. <laughs> I get that from a lot of people. I mean, I I became a leader mostly because, well, I was on a track to become a leader because I wanted to be left alone, if I'm totally honest. Like I existed in a lot of organizations as like a lone wolf and I realized that, like, I just needed to accrue more power to continue to find that place. And then someone just saddled me with a team one day, and I thought it was going to be the end of my autonomy. And then I realized, you know, and I was a, a programmer at the time, and I realized that, like, the the dopamine hit I would get at solving a problem with code was nothing compared to, like, watching someone grow. And I'd, I had no clue that was actually going to be interesting to me. And it wasn't until someone gave me a team that I was like, oh, this is interesting. I think a lot of people are just given teams and it's fortunate that for you it worked out that you were like, hey, this is something that I really enjoy. Right. I, I w enjoy seeing other people develop and become leaders themselves. A lot of people are good at one thing. They're good at coding or they're good at marketing or what have you. And so people think, oh, well, you'll just be a good leader. And then they give you a team, but they don't actually tell you how to lead that team. Mistaking expertise for leadership, right? You're right. Technical expertise. Um, a lot of people have a mental model of leadership that means that they are better at my job than I am. Right. And that's why they're the boss. But that is only one tiny component of this. Verse, right. And this is why we're seeing in tech companies especially – a track for individual contributors, right? Mm -hmm. Like stay a functional expert. You don't have to be saddled with a team if that's not what like you're good at and what you engage with. Um, and so we're, you know, that's what we're seeing more and more and that's great so that we have fewer shitty managers. 
What about the environment and conformity, right? Even the physical surroundings of these different offices are, I mean, they're literal hellscapes. But I'm, I'm curious what you guys have seen that really just creates an environment, uh, an ambiance, if you will, which encourages people to all behave in the same way and give up the individuality which maybe people want Wait, to are you trying <laughs> is this for people who want to take choice away from people <laughs> <laughs> i see those offices as hell and i think of it as like on inspirational porn right yeah well, i mean both sides let's, let's take it from both sides i don't know i mean i i i sit on the end of the spectrum that is like very individualistic like i grew up in texas spoiler alert I think of organization as culture, the leaders who really buy into that and think of their organizations as a micro society, I find those hellscapes because they are trying to homogenize people's beliefs and values and like ways of being and like their behaviors and everything. Um, and I think that's what you see, especially in pretty face, like everyone wears the exact same clothes. They all work in the exact same cubicle. That's when I actually like my hackles get up in an organization where it's like, we all belong here. Like that scares the hell We're out of me. We're all individuals. <laughs> I'm not. And there and there is a lot of conformity in how you dress, right? So in the good place, it's pretty corporate. They're all wearing suits. Pretty face is the khaki and polo uniform. And of course, devil's advocate is is power suits, right? And it is. It is a way of saying that you are not an individual. Yeah, you're part of the team here. It, I, yeah. One of the things that I keep noticing about the environments that end up being hellish is like the cubicle farm. It's always considered a hellscape. And so I think that when you're thinking about the, the physical environment for your office, something that is engineered to be cheap and scalable and repeatable tends to be a little bit more hellish when you're just there with the low, sort of a lowest common denominator. And, and yet I know a lot of people who sit in open office floor plans that mm -hmm. would kill for that cubicle. Yeah. And end up in hell. Well, there's a lack of privacy, right? Mm -hmm. Either open office or a cubicle. There's very little space for you to have a private conversation or to be able to escape from everybody else. I've got a mini rant about this. Mini rant. Like that I can build person. on this. Yeah, go ahead. Um. All right. So, and I'm going to make a bunch of assumptions, but this idea of like, the good place is interesting because like when they have to disguise themselves they dressed in like very 50s garb and that was making me think of okay the office drones that we know with like the black suit with the thin black tie there was something about that homogenization which is like we are all cogs in a machine how dare you be the the cog that sticks out but then now we live in the tech startup world where it's like we're not cogs in the machine but we're all part of the same family and the culture and there's something like i find worse about that because that that is surrendering. That is like pretending like you have an individuality, but surrendering identity to it. And I'm, you know, it's like I can get down with the dress. I, I don't like dress codes in any way, but I can get more down with the one where it's like, well, we're all just trying to get work Organization done. Organization men. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I guess I. Yes. The Versus the like. Considering you work in an office of literally all women. But... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm referencing the work of the 50s. Yeah. Versus, yeah. Like, you know, the the surrender your identity to this cult to the manson family um and we all belong now together i find that more insipid personally well i want to go back to what you're just saying because to me one of the things that makes that that ties into is learned helplessness 
So there's a loss of privacy. There's a subjection to arbitrary and continuous control um, and loss of personal identity. And those are aspects of learned helplessness. You know, learned helplessness being the idea that um, if you condition people that they don't have a choice, after a while, even if they end up having a choice, they will not choose uh, their own free will. They will just keep perpetuating the cage that you've put them in. Which, of course, brings me to my last and favorite topic, what makes things hell? Other people. <laughs> well, a good place is just designed around this whole idea, right? You don't need the demons. You just need the people. And the people themselves can create enough chaos and uncertainty and confusion and, and, and misery. Yeah. So that's the entire idea of that hell. You know, just when you said that, I wondered if maybe the problem with Michael's design is that he chose four people who would interact, like were specifically chosen to drive each other crazy in a specific way. Mm. And maybe this is actually a scale question because the rest of the people are demons. I wonder if he had just recreated a society with, let's say, over the Dunbar number of 150 people. Like he just created a hell of literally 1,000 people if that would be more effective because then you couldn't adapt. I mean, then it's just hell is earth. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Okay, so... To me, the reason... Uh, please, so, positive psychology, Kim. Heavy sigh. <laughs> the reason his plan doesn't work is because hell is not other people. Do you notice that at every pos every event that foils this is when they band together and stop getting irritated at each other's differences and they decide that they're going to be friends anyway and that these, these things are not flaws, they're features. Yeah, so that's why I'm saying it's too few people to be a hell. <laughs> They need more people to increase the complexity so that they can never actually learn to tolerate other people. Yeah, so hell is not other people. Is what hell I'm is saying. Twitter. I could see that. <laughs> hell, so, so hell converts to heaven when you decide to overlook the, the bullshit. And then, of course, in Devil's Advocate, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that most of the people that work at the law firm are people. I'm pretty sure they're people. But the the wives are demons. At least mm -hmm. we're, we're led to believe that they're demons. But the people who work at the law firm, again, you see Eddie Barzoon. He's he's the person that you. you I get just to... love you saying that name. For I some strange Barzoon reason. is the best. Eddie name. Barzoon. Like yeah, Barzoon. every time I say it, I hear Al Pacino saying it. Eddie Barzoon. Eddie Barzoon. <laughs> Eddie Barzoon, Eddie Barzoon. And so that's, that's what I'm trying to re recreate in my mind. My new safe word. <laughs> Whatever whatever floats your boat. Instruments of domination. Eddie Barzoon is a really good example. He's not a really supportive co-worker. I think that when Kevin shows up, he's, you know, the... He's kind of fresh off the boat and he's excited to show what he can do in New York, the big city. But... All of his colleagues are, again, they don't trust him. They, they undercut him. They, um, Eddie Barzun doesn't, doesn't trust him. The colleagues who do theoretically support him, right, uh, his, his neighbors across the hall, they actually go to work completely making Marianne question herself, always questioning, like, oh, is that the right color for the walls? Like, are you wearing that? John Milton actually tells her that her hair is totally wrong and she should cut it and go back to her. So it's always making people really doubt themselves in an effort, again, to give in and become and conform with the cultural norms of that organization. 
Well, I think the premise of hell as other people when it relates to work is fascinating because of just the history of organizational development. The idea that work was just a place to get tasks done. And then it took eons for us to be like, well, it's humans doing this. And humans have needs. And humans are complicated. And maybe we should pay attention to the human side of work. That 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 eye-opening thing is still something that we see forgotten about in a lot of workplaces. It's true. We run into a lot of, of executives who absolutely only seem to think about the work and don't talk about the values behind it or don't ever lift the hood on what they're doing. Yeah. And then you can, if you, if you don't do that, then you only see people as just very ineffectual cogs. Very. Yes. Cause that's the problem with humans is that we're not great cogs. Yeah. I can't make you feel something. Mm-mm. No. And you also, you have these nasty habits of wanting food and water and sleep and to do other things <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> disagree hands cotton looms and stuff (laughs) yeah bad robot what do we encourage leaders to do then to make the workplace more human and less hellish right like how do you foster those really positive encouraging relationships between different members of your team and outside of your team a lot of the way you measure results so, you know, if you're playing people off against each other, and I say this because it, it may sound like obvious, but I know a lot of people who think that the way to manage employees is to play one off against another. Yeah. So don't do that. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Please don't do that. Don't manipulate people. Don't. We once worked for a company that, like, everyone said it was Hunger Games, and we went to the CEO and we said, like, this is the catchphrase that everyone keeps saying. It's like the Hunger Games here. And he his response was, it can be something else yeah like because that is how yeah. he grew up inside Absolutely. the organization it's like oh psychic prison psychic prison you are you've been stuck in this idea for so long and so part of it is to you know realize your responsibility in yeah. this and when i say responsibility i don't mean like you should hand ring wring your hands over your guilt in bringing this about but more like notice that you have some abilities to make things different yeah. and decide to do that rather than just perpetuate what may have been done to you yeah I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, I've heard it in. I've thought I've I've heard it referred to as like a, a marriage therapist trick. No, I'm I'm not married or a marriage therapist or going to therapy. Any of the above. Um, but I've I've heard this framing of a problem should be that it is not you, you should go to therapy. Not you versus your spouse when you are tackling a problem, but it is you and the spouse versus the problem. Yes. And I think that's a really important thing for organizations to keep in mind. I see this all the time with teams. Instead of trying to tackle the problem together and say, like, what are we going to do? How do we address this? It so often turns into pointing fingers and blaming, and you didn't do this, and you never did that. And so I, th- I think it's really critical to get everybody on the same page oriented towards the problem or the goal that you're trying to achieve together. Agreed. Absolutely. Well yeah. put. Yeah. And I think a lot of these things come out of fear and how you remove fear from the organization, I think, is an interesting question as a leader. Um, you know, some of it is uncertainty and competition and those things exist and you should be sober about what exists, but fear itself should be something as a leader you confront and try to remove as much as possible. Because then, even if you're not directly touching it, you get a lot of like 
scarcity minded behaviors from people inside the organization. Looking back, we've talked about organizations as metaphor. We've evaluated why exactly office life is so hellish. But I would put to you, is it really so bad? I mean, are these portrayals of Satan, is this is this the worst boss that you can have? Or should we really just suck it up and admit that, hey, we're like this is work and it's gonna suck and there's not a whole lot we can do about it? So I have found an article online, this was many years ago, in which it described your version of hell based off of your Myers-Briggs personality test. Now, to be clear, I think Myers-Briggs are about as accurate as astrology. We think, yes. But all of us. That said, I have actually found this the most effective diagnostic tool for Myers-Briggs. I will I can read off descriptions of other people's hell and people are like, "Yeah, that's, I, I get it. It sucks. That's that's why it would be terrible." Um, but when I read off theirs, like it generally speaking leaves them gasping for air. So, uh mine as an ENTJ is my personal hell is somebody is wrong and they're directing a large group of people. You can't do anything about it and will have to obey whatever inefficient policies they decide <laughs> to implement. So if you know me... And this is why you're not working in a large bureaucracy. Exactly. All right. All right. Who's next? Who's got... Who knows what their Myers-Briggs personality type is or thinks, thinks they know? I think it's going to have to be the INTP. You're eternally condemned to researching an extremely vapid topic using wildly inaccurate methods, mostly involving interviewing people who have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, that actually sounds exactly, <laughs> exactly like your personal hell. <laughs> Doctor in, in yeah. extremely vapid things. <sighs> no, whatever. All right, bud. I think the last time I took it, I was an INFJ. You are eternally damned to work for a morally corrupt company that aims to exploit the weak and generally degrade conditions for all of society. What did I say? This is, hands down, the most effective diagnostic tool that I have ever come across online. Uh, so I'm sure we can link to this in, in the podcast notes so that everybody can uh, find out what their own personal version of hell is. Thanks for joining for a very special Halloween episode of Work of Fiction. Check us out at workoffiction.fm and don't forget to like, subscribe, tell all your friends about us. If you have a work of fiction that you would like us to talk about in terms of organizational design, make sure that you reach out to us at heart at nobl.io. Yeah.